When the going gets tough, the tough get going, somebody said. They, they attribute that to Joseph Kennedy. It's also been attributed to Newt Rockney. I don't know who said it. If you do research, you'll probably find several people claiming credit. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. When times are hard, um, there's a certain caliber of person that is going to knuckle down, is going to face a challenge, is going to double down, is going to dig into it. It's not going to run away from it. It's not going to shy away from it or pretend it doesn't exist. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. So what do you do when the going gets tough? Who do you turn to? What do you turn to when things aren't going the way that you think they ought to? Where do you run when you are afraid and circumstances warrant that you should be? On June 21st of this year, we were involved in a church-wide reading plan, reading selected psalms. We were in Psalm 11. In Psalm 11, this type of question is asked in, in what I think is a memorable way. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the word foundation here means basis, purpose. In his notes on the Bible, Albert Barnes comments this way. He says, the word foundation here refers to those things on which society rests or by which social order is sustained. The great principles of truth and righteousness that uphold society as the foundation on which an edifice rests uphold the building. The reference is to a destruction of those things in a community when truth is no longer respected, when justice is no longer practiced, when fraud and violence have taken the place of honesty and honor, when error prevails when a character for integrity and virtue affords no longer any security. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous, and by righteous we don't mean perfect, it doesn't mean some kind of holier-than-thou person, but, but the word means just, lawful, the one who, who is in a right relationship with God, the one who wants to do the right thing, who desires to please the Father with his choices, with her choices. What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? That word destroyed has the, has the uh, connotation of being torn down. When the foundations are being torn down, when they're being ruined, what can you do? What an apt question, don't you think, for Christians in our country today. A country like ours whose foundations appear to be under attack by those with an agenda to dismantle them, to tear them down, and to build them back in some other form. What can the righteous do when the values of society shift decisively? What can the righteous do when evil is called good and good is called evil? What can the righteous do when immorality is paraded in the streets? What can the righteous do when speaking the truth in love is considered hate speech? What an apt question. For Christians in our country today and more broadly what an excellent question for people of faith in general since we are all virtually assured that at one time or another in this life we are going to face times of crises times of trouble threats that will test the very pillars of what we've built our lives on and pinned our hopes on and trusted in and needed Psalm 11 brings a word of encouragement to us this morning. 
a perspective that will always be needed, a truth to tuck away in the back of our minds for recall in our moment of need. Friend, even if your world seems to be falling apart, you don't have to. In the face of danger, the faithful can find and take refuge in God. Father, we humble ourselves before your word this day. It is always your voice that we gather here to hear. So speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear you. Open our hearts. Minister to us deeply. Touch us and change us. For we know it would be for our good and even more important, for your glory. Do this, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, take a, take a turn to Psalm 11, if you would. We're just going to walk through a few of these verses. We're not going to go through all of them, but a few of them. Psalm 11. Right away, if you study this, if you, if you sort of evaluate this text critically, you will notice that it seems as we open, we're entering into the middle of a conversation. We got no record of what exactly, if anything, was said prior to verse 1. We don't know who, if anyone, the Psalms author David is speaking with. But we do know that David is under some sort of threat of attack. So the psalm begins with an affirmation, a declaration. In the Lord I take refuge, or as the King James Version has it, in the Lord put I my trust. And what we translate refuge or trust comes from a Hebrew word, a root that means to flee to for protection. So David begins this song with a conclusion, with an announcement. In response to some advice, we'll see that he finds objectionable. This advice, this counsel he has received is literally, you see it in the first verse, that he should run for the hills, that he should flee to safety like a bird to its mountain. Well, a totally unreasonable suggestion. Someone or someones are lying in wait to harm David. He describes them as archer assassins. The word means morally wrong. The word used to describe them wicked. They are wicked, bad people, ungodly. We know that they are wicked and that they are able. They bend the bow and that they are ready to do harm. They have fitted their arrow to the string. Anybody here who's ever shot a bow and arrow, before you do that, you need to fit the arrow to the string. In other words, this person is ready to do harm and also ready to ambush, to shoot in the dark. When I first read that, I thought, what's the big deal about a shot in the dark? It's kind of like catch a cat can, right? You might make it, you might not. That's how we view a shot in the dark in America, but that's not what that's talking about, actually. It's talking about the idea of concealment, of using darkness to hide which means there's a very real threat out there, but you can't see it. Isn't it the unknowns that get us a lot of times, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. This archer assassin lurks in the shadows, ready to come out and shoot at the upright in heart, who happens to be David, David who is just and good and, and an undeserving target of such violence. So that might be a real assassination plot that David's talking about. Those were not uncommon in his day. They're not uncommon in our day. You've probably been reading about what's happening in Haiti, for instance. It happened then, it happens now. So this could have been a real assassination plot that David, David's advisors were concerned about. 
or it could be figurative. It is, after all, a psalm. It is a poem. It is a song. It could just be talking about unwarranted persecution. Either way, things are deteriorating in David's kingdom, and the suggestion of an unnamed advisor is for him to run away and escape the danger. I like to think that maybe this is the advice of David's chief of staff, who thinks that he's so important and so integral to Israel's success that no harm can befall him. And so it's an, it's an important thing that he gets out with his life. But maybe this is also the counsel we don't know of David's enemies, who, like Nehemiah's detractors, want to intimidate him and want to believe him, get, get him to believe that the only thing he can do, the only option he really has, is to save himself, that his mission isn't going to work and he should bail out of there. For all we know, this could be part of an inner dialogue that David's having with himself. Do you talk to yourself? I talk to myself. <laughs> Mostly I say, what am I doing in this room? But <laughs> you talk to yourself when, when you're weighing the options. So maybe David was just kind of talking to himself. And one of the options that came up in the face of this grave danger was, I guess I need to get out of here. We don't know that. We don't know what's going on except that escape has been offered as a possibility. And who would blame David if he should choose to run away? After all, you see it in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the implied answer to that question seems to be not much. Not much, if anything. You've heard that. Maybe you've even felt that. You look around and you see the momentum of evil and wickedness and think, what can I do? And in despair, you may think not too much. In fact, the Good News Bible paraphrases verse 3 this way, there is nothing a good person can do when everything falls apart. Well, if there's nothing to do, if the tide of immorality is rising, if the social order is disintegrating, if you with a minority opinion, are in the way, if you are in the crosshairs of the culture, maybe the thing to do is run away and hide. At least you must save yourself. Sometimes fleeing a situation is the right thing to do. A couple weeks ago, Liz and I began our time off with a short trip to the Green Mountains of Vermont. Anybody been to the Green Mountains of Vermont? It's beautiful. We visited the Trapp Family Lodge. Anybody been there? Getting real specific now. Some of you have. The settling place of the renowned Von Trapp Family Singers, right? Who in the late 1930s fled the growing Nazism in Austria, where they would have been pressed into service for Hitler's wartime machine and propaganda. They fled their country. They fled their mountains. And they came to our mountains for safety. In the book of the Judges, we read how the Israelites fled to the mountains when the people of Israel overpowered them. In Hebrews, we read also about people of faith being so persecuted that it was their lot to live in obscure places, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Jesus himself said, and it's recorded in three out of Four of the Gospels. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are, outside, are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Sometimes fleeing is the right thing to do. And sometimes it isn't. It's the right thing if God makes you a way to escape a threatening scenario and you take it. If God opens that door for you and you can walk through it, that's the right thing. But it's the wrong thing if in your panic at circumstances or your simple desire for self-preservation, you take matters into your own hands and you decide you're going to strike out there without God. As much as we'd like a formula for deciding, should I stay or should I go? There isn't one. So what to do, the right course of action when you're facing immense danger or trial, toils and snares that we sing about, you have to discern the right action. And you do that by asking and answering a few questions. As a believer facing what I'm facing, what is the response of faith? What is faith's response to fear's counsel? Fear says run. That's built in. But what does faith say? What is the faithful response? Also, is there specific instruction in God's word to guide me right now? Because a lot of times we get in those perplexing spots. We pray, oh, God, show me. And if God were sitting right there with you, he'd say, I have shown you. Open the Bible. It's right here. Here's what to do. If you're like me, you say, yeah, but I don't like that answer, God. I'm actually asking you for a different one. That's the honest part about it, right? But, but if we're looking to be wise, we want to ask God, is there instruction in this word that's going to help me, that's going to move me, that's going to guide me? Or very basically, God, with whatever I'm facing right now, what does obedience look like? Just to make it simple, how do I obey you right now, right here? It doesn't seem like David's advisors were thinking along these lines at all. And in truth, not many do. So we have in the first three verses of Psalm 11, you can almost hear the panic in these voices of people. They're going to counsel David to run, and yet their counsel is unthinkable to him. He barks at the suggestion. He says, how can you say to me, flee as a bird to his mouth? How can you say that to me? Running away is not an option. Why is it not an option? Well, we actually covered it already in the beginning. But it's so easy to read over quickly these first verses. David has already determined where he's going to run for safety. His commitment is this, right? I'm not fleeing to the hills for my protection. I'm fleeing to God. He already said that. In God is my refuge. In God put I my trust. I have already decided that when it's time to flee for protection, that I know what direction I'm going in. I'm fleeing to God. The message paraphrase captures this pretty nicely. It says, I've already run for dear life straight into the arms of God. Why would I run away now? Beloved, when times are tough, where do you run? What do you do? To what or whom do you turn? In Psalm 11, David turns his focus from the crumbling foundations of his kingdom and the imminent danger to his life to the God who's sovereign over all of it. 
his example of looking up in addition to looking around is a timely one, don't you think? I don't know about you, but I can really easily get wrapped up in looking around and taking in a lot of what's around. Liz and I go on this beautiful vacation. We meet wonderful people, hardworking Americans. We meet happy people, a few cranky pants, but mostly happy people. <laughs> Life is good. We come back, we turn on the news, only to learn that it's all going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and then you can get wrapped up in what's around, can't you? It's overwhelming. But David, David's not blind to what is around. He's just wise enough to look up. Because yes, that's a reality, but there's a grander reality that sits over all of it. And that is the goodness of God and the power of God and the supremacy of God over everything. One commentator put it this way. He said, it's interesting that the questions being asked by those controlled by fear is what can the righteous do? And yet the real question is to whom shall the righteous look? There is nothing they can do if they look to themselves. However, there's a lot they can do if they look to the Lord. The Lord is the only one to whom we can look when the foundations are shaken. And he's the only one to whom we must look if we are to stand firm in unsettling times. Because no matter what seems to be happening on the ground, real or perceived, accurate or not, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. What? What? Where is God? <laughs> he is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God is on the throne. And our God reigns. That's the source of David's strength. That's the source of David's resolve. That's what lets him bravely face the dangers of the unknown before him. God. Not the total of his circumstances. Not the way things appear. God is his refuge. And God is in control. Tim Keller wrote a devotional on this psalm, a little devotional. He called it The Disciplines of Distress. And in that devotional, he shared this thought. He said, when we human beings think that we're in control of the world, and then when the world gets out of our control, then we think the world is out of control. But actually, it was never in our control. The foundations of the order of the world are the throne of God. And God's got a plan. God is governing. God is ruling. It's always been the case. Can you relate to that? You think you've got to control it all, and then it starts to slip sideways. Man, this whole thing is out of control. You never had it in control, and it was never yours to control. That's something that we are almost always fighting is trying to be our own sovereign, trying to be our own God. Instead of submitting to him and his perfect plan, God is in control. 
And though he dwells on a, in a high and lofty place, I love that Isaiah, he dwells in a high and lofty place. So you get this idea of a God who is wholly other, not like me. Nonetheless, he sees the tiniest details of every single life in this world. He knows everything. How on earth can God do that? I have no idea, but he knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. And there isn't a bird that falls from the sky that escapes his notice. My goodness, God sees it all. And that's what we see here in, in, in verse 4. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. In verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. You know that troubles are a test, don't you? I mean, I know they're annoying, and I know they're irritating, and I know we don't like challenges and struggles and all that. I'm not saying that you should. That'd be a little weird. But you do understand this, right, as people of faith, that your troubles are tests. That God's not going to waste the trouble on someone like you that he loves without giving you an opportunity to gain from it. He tests us. He tries us. He proves our faith. And you know what? I think you'll agree with me. There's really nothing like a trial to expose who or what we truly believe and trust in. The trial reveals our functional God. Is it him? Or is it me? Or is it my bank account? Or is it my strength? Is it my smarts? Whatever. Is it my beauty? What do we trust in? What do we believe in? There's little more effective than hardship to make us discover and develop the muscles of faith that usually go unused in times of prosperity. And that's why James tells us, he exhorts us really, one of the harder verses I think in scripture, to embrace hard times with joy. To count it all joy, my brothers. That you, that, 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 to consider it all joy, my brothers, that you're encountering various trials. Not, not celebrating the trial, not happy per se about the pain, but understanding that God is at work shaping my character through this. How badly do you want to be like him? How badly do you want to be like Jesus? You're going to have to suffer. That suffering is a test. God is at work. Count it joy. Charles Spurgeon on this wrote, Our Lord, in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love, set so high a value upon his people's faith that he will not screen them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. Did you catch that? God places such a, a, a high value on your faith that he's not going to remove you from these trials by which your faith will be strengthened. You would never have possessed the precious faith which now supports you if the trial of your faith had not been like unto fire. You're a tree that never would have rooted so well if the wind had not rocked you to and fro and made you take firm hold upon the precious truths of the covenant grace. Worldly ease is a great foe to faith. It loosens the joints of holy valor and snaps the sinews of sacred courage. The balloon never rises until the cords are cut. Affliction doth this sharp service for believing souls. While the wheat sleeps comfortably and the husk, it's useless to man. It must be threshed out of its resting place before its value can be known. Thus it is well that Jehovah trieth the righteous, for it causeth them to grow rich towards God. Thus it is well that Jehovah trieth the righteous, for it causes them to become rich 
toward God. Yes, he tests the righteous. And such testing is undoubtedly what some of you in this sanctuary today are going through right now. And if that is the case, as it was for David, should you wrangle your way out from under this test and miss what the Lord is doing in you and in your life so that you might simply remain as you are? Should you withdraw from the world as you know it and cease trying to be an influence in it, effectively allowing others to stay as they are? Should you flee and miss the opportunity to be the very agent, the salt and the light to counteract these crumbling foundations? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, James Montgomery Boyce offers a sound response when he says this, they can go on being righteous. Right? They can go on being righteous. In the face of grave threats to your life, to your status, to your reputation, to your hopes, to your dreams, to what you value most, to your sense of how it ought to be, you have options. One of those options is to flee. You can run. You can evacuate. Another of those options, you could also forsake your convictions. You could walk out on God. You could turn your back on your faith. You could join the rebellion. Jesus assures us that many people will do that in the end times. They will fall away. They will not withstand persecution. They will walk over and join the enemy's side. And that is an option. So you can flee. You can give in or give up. But you can also go on being righteous. You can make it your aim as you walk through this life to live by faith in obedience to God. That, of course, is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 in the parable of the two builders. That is what allows a person to endure the storms of life intact. The ones who hear and obey are those who have built their house on a rock. And when the rains and the floods come, they make it. They make it through. They withstand. Not because of the wonderful house that they've built, but because of what it is built on. As one writer has put it, what do we do when the foundations are destroyed? Psalm 11 answers this question by giving us another foundation. Trust in the Lord. What are the foundations of your life? That's one th thought I had as I read through this text. What do I do if the foundations are destroyed? Make sure they're the right foundations. Am I leaning on the right stuff? Am I building on the right things? This commentator here says, trust in the Lord. Psalm 11 gives us this foundation. Trust in the Lord. Make him your security. Make him your refuge. Know that he inhabits eternity and reigns over the chaos of this world. His throne is in heaven. His moral order and kingdom transcend this world and cannot be overthrown. If you are worshiping here today with hearts that are heavy for the crumbling foundations of our nation, or if there is some other sort of crisis facing you today, challenging your faith, here's the word, friend, here's the word, look up. Look up. 
trust God. God is so good. And God is all-powerful. If it seems like your world is falling apart, you don't have to. You don't have to. If you're going to run, run like David did. Run to God for your protection, for your safety, for your refuge. Do not despair. Do not give up. Keep on being righteous. For as the psalm concludes, for the Lord is righteous. And he loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Take a moment and just pause for reflection and response to what the Spirit may be doing in your heart or your mind this morning. Then we're going to sing some songs and worship. Our Father and our God, thank you for this glimpse of your glory and your power, your supremacy. Thank you that you are in control of all things. Thank you for this reminder that we can run, but we have a right place to run, and it is to you. Thank you that you will receive us when we come to you, no matter what's going on in our lives. Deliver us, Father, we pray, from despair, from worry that is unnecessary, God. Forgive us for trying to control the world that you made. Help us to be much more comfortable with the control that you exhibit. Father, challenge us this day. Are we going through a test? God, give us the strength to take the test. Help us to walk through it and not want to fly out from under it, God, so that we can be who you want us to be, do what you want us to do, and ultimately, with lives sanctified completely, give the glory to you. Amen.